We were going to give you a financial update this morning on the building, but what we have to cover is so important, we're going to save that for next week. If you have a Bible with you, would you jump into Luke chapter 6? And if uh, you're turning there to Luke chapter 6, maybe have it on your phone or an iPad this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back for you when you leave this morning. Be sure and pick one up on your way out. Luke chapter 6, and at the same time, you may want to put a finger over in 2 Peter chapter 1. Luke chapter 6, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up with the parables where we are at. I've got to share with you one of the scariest passages in the Bible. But before we do that, I'm going to pray with you. Would you join me? Father, I know that you look upon this auditorium filled with people and all those who are watching online right now. You know us intimately. You see us. What we were doing yesterday did not escape your attention. What we'll do tomorrow does not escape your attention. And where we're at right now, you're intimately aware. Father, we come to this place where we've made a declaration about what we believe. We say with our lips that we take a stand and that our heart is surrendered to you. God, I pray that you would massage our hearts this morning, that that would be true. That we would not just be playing church, but rather who we are this morning will be reflected tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. And, and where you need to do heart surgery, where you need to prick us, where you need to pierce, Father, I ask that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. Don't let these words escape our attention. And when we celebrate baptism, Father, let us celebrate well because it's the evidence of what you are actually doing. We pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Matthew 7 is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. I told you Luke 6, but let me start out with Matthew 7. And this is, for me, one of the two scariest. Here's what it says. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. I asked you last week, if you would, at the end of the parable study we were looking at, that you would chew on that phrase, Lord, Lord. It's being deliberately used here in Matthew 7. You'll see it used in Luke 6. I wanted you to chew on it because Jesus poses a really significant issue related to it, and it's especially powerful in today's parable. So between last week when we looked at the blind leading the blind and this week when we've got the wise and the foolish builder, Jesus hits the pause button, and he asks this really probing question. Look with me on the screen. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And it's this really haunting echo of the statement that he just made in Matthew chapter 7. In the first century, the term Lord was a title of honor and respect. And it was used for military leaders and for political leaders and for landowners. That's where we get the phrase, landlord. And for teachers who were elevated in religious positions, they were called Lord. 
If you looked in your notes already, you saw that Greek phrase there, kyrios. And kyrios is speaking specifically of the one who's in authority, but you notice in parentheses, it's, it's a respectful title, like sir or master. But to say, Lord, Lord, that's more than respect. See, individuals who are using it in the way that Jesus is referring to it, they're connecting it with things that they claim as their identity. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? See, they're attaching it to something supernatural. This is more than a title of respect. They're using Lord in a supernatural way. So in the ancient world, the Jewish people came to understand that Lord needed to become a substitute for the name Jehovah. When Moses was on Sinai and he said, God, what should I call you? What should I tell the people of Israel that you're called? He said, Moses, tell them I am called Yahweh. But Yahweh, Jehovah, was too holy to utter, and so they substituted it for the word Lord. So in its place they put Lord as in Lord God. Therefore, to address Jesus as Lord, Lord, is addressing him as the one true God. And Lord, Lord, it adds an intensity. It demonstrates the strength of devotion as in, I'll stand, my heart is surrendered to you. It's like saying Lord, Lord, like in church. So rightfully, Jesus is asking this question in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? It's like saying, what's going on here? Because what you're doing doesn't match with what you're saying. You're not living it out. And to be really clear, he's talking about those who claim that they follow Jesus. He's got the crowd following him. They're sitting there and listening to him. So are we speaking here of people who've been led astray, as with the blind leading the blind? Or is Jesus speaking of people who've fallen into some form of self-deception? I think it's the latter. There's also being led astray going on here, but this is self-deception. Let me show you why. The Bible says this in Matthew 7, 13. You see it on the screen. There's very few who enter the narrow gate of salvation. Look with me at this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. In other words, even though there's individuals who think they're on their way to heaven, they're not. They're the ones who are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? See, it must be that there's a significant degree of self-deception going on. In the United States of America, 65% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. That's a remarkable percentage. Especially if you went back 10 years and you would find that national polls said that 85% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. 
10 years, 20%, where did they go? Well, they actually started identifying as the nun generation. I don't mean N-U-N as in Catholic nun. I mean N-O-N-E, nun, I believe nothing. I'm not sure what I belong to. I don't claim anything, so they're known as the nun, and that's 26% of them that are in that category. So whether it's 65% or 85%, on the basis of a biblical description of what a true believer is, That number can't even be close to being accurate because Jesus said there's few who find it. Among many who say, Lord, Lord, we believe, there's few who actually are there. So not only do the blind lead the blind into a pit, as we saw last week, but even absent of a blind guide, we can deceive ourselves, and we have to ask this question. How in the world does that happen? Well, if you've looked in your notes already, you'll see this on the screen as well. There's two categories of self-deception. I want to show them to you real quickly, but not breeze through them real quickly. Just look at that, drink it in, because that slide's not going to be up very long. First one, because of mere intellectual knowledge, and that would be those who hear about Jesus. They hear about forgiveness, they hear about grace, and they process the information, but don't do anything about it. That's one category of self-deception. They're confusing knowledge with actual relationship. But here's the second one. Because of verbal profession. Those who would say, yes, I believe, but they don't do anything. And those are the ones Jesus is talking about. You, You say one thing, but you do something completely different. And we're talking about blatant hypocrisy here. And understand, Jesus isn't talking to atheists here. He's not talking to agnostics. He's not speaking to pagans. He's speaking to people who hear him. So we could say, if we translated it to the year 2019, this is the church crowd. He's got all of his followers gathered around him. And somehow they've deluded themselves into thinking they're on the road to heaven, when in reality, they're on this broad road to hell. He says this completely out of love. He wouldn't say this if it wasn't important for people to know. And he doesn't say it to irritate people. He says it because I love you. If I didn't care, I wouldn't warn you. So what lulls people into that place of deception? I've identified three contributors. Let me put them on the screen for you. The first one is false teaching. In some cases, there are individuals who've been misled, meaning they've never understood what it means to be a repentant sinner. And so they're caught up in a works system. And you probably know individuals like that. Maybe that's you this morning. I hope not. Maybe you think that if you just do enough good things, God's going to let you in one day. Maybe you work with individuals like that. I've checked this off my list and this off my list and this off my list. I've been a good girl or good boy all my life. And maybe God's just going to let me in one day based on my good works. That's a deception, according to Scripture. Those people have been misled. Here's another one, a false understanding of assurance of salvation. And you might be confused about that. Let me expand on that for a minute. These would be individuals who've been told all their life that all they have to do is walk an aisle, raise a hand, say a prayer without any evidence whatsoever that there's any fruit in their life. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. Now, here's the truth. Just take a minute to inhale and exhale. I know this is kind of intense stuff, right? If you were coming for Happy Sunday, that was last week, okay? Just take a minute, hit the pause button. 
in truth. If you are a believer in Jesus, that is between you and the one who sits on the throne. Amen? Amen. It's between the two of you. It's between you and God. I don't stand here as your judge. I personally can't say with any absolute certainty what is true of you. And you can't of me. What Jesus is saying, is there any fruit that gives evidence? Am I faithful to what I claim, I say, I believe? But we can go better than that. We can say that the Bible actually says the Spirit will witness to you. The Holy Spirit of the living God witnesses to you to confirm that you truly are a believer. Look with me on the screen. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, you don't need me to tell you. You already know. Or this one, Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Maybe you're reading that saying, I'm not sure I can put the pieces together though. What does that look like? How do I know that the Spirit is witnessing to me? I bet if you polled 100 believing Christians, whether or not they wanted to know for sure with absolute certainty that they're destined for heaven, all of them would say, absolutely, I want to know for sure, absolutely. Let's eliminate tripping over doubt about this issue. This is all setting up this parable. The parable goes really fast. This is just setting up what Jesus is about to say. And I want to eliminate for you tripping over any doubt about this issue. Peter actually writes that you can make it clear, you can absolutely know your eternity is for sure. Look with me at this, 2 Peter 1.11. In this way, this is why I said stick your finger in 1 Peter. You might even want to underline that. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. What way, Peter? I want to know. How, maybe that will take away my anxiety. I really want to understand that. Well, he makes it really, really clear in 1 Peter. He says, you can know your eternity is sure by seeing something in your life. By seeing increasing qualities in your life that other people can point to as well. Qualities of fruitfulness. Look with me at verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Is faith in Jesus a magnificent promise? Is forgiveness of sin a magnificent promise? That's what Peter's talking about here. These magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. In other words, what Peter is saying is Jesus did it all for you. He did everything you need. You just received it. It's part of who you are now. You've escaped corruption as a result of it. So he goes on with verse 5. Now for this very reason, also, pay attention, New Hope, applying all diligence, diligent to what, Peter? In diligent in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Be diligent about these seven qualities and you'll know, you'll see evidence in your life. The Holy Spirit will confirm within you 
that you're destined for glory. Now let's go through those seven real quickly. Let me show them to you. They look the way they pop out there. Moral excellent. What's that talking about? Morality. In other words, what are you allowing into your life? What, what are you laughing at on television? What are you laughing at in the office? That's the morality meter or knowledge. What are you allowing into your mind? Do you spend more time with God or on pop culture? Or what about this one, self-control? In other words, what's dominating you? What are your habits? Number four, perseverance. Like, how determined are you? Do you find yourself constantly slipping backwards? Or are you gaining some traction? That's why here at New Hope, I regularly ask individuals, how you doing? Are you further along than you were a year ago at this time? Is God's word making more sense to you than it did five years ago? Are you progressing in this? Or what about this one, godliness? Here's a check valve for you. How would your friends describe you on the godliness meter? How would your family describe you in that category? How would they define your walk? Or number six, brotherly kindness. In other words, what's your attitude towards others? Do you have a short fuse? Or do you just love helping people? What's that like in your life? And love, the seventh one, is, is the final outcome. It's the product of all those six compressed together. In other words, the way you're doing in brotherly kindness and all those other things, they're compressed into, are you loving well? Because Peter goes on to say this in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where it gets really prickly. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind. That's the Bible's way of saying not saved. That's a biblical description for not being saved. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That's the Bible saying, here's how you can know for sure. For in this way, verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I told you there were three contributors to this self-deception thing. Here's the last one before we step into the parable. The third contributor is a failure of self-examination. In other words, a presumptuous view of grace. We opened up this service singing about amazing grace. We all know the words. We're Americans, right? You hear it at every funeral. We know amazing grace because we know the lyrics to the song. But unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of Americans trip up. Because we understand what grace is, and so it causes a lot of people to go through life completely unconcerned about sin. In other words, I can do whatever I want. I got the grace card. Besides, God knows I really need this. No, he doesn't. That's not God's view of sin. Should we continue in sin that grace would abound? That's what Paul wrote. 
We're specifically told if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're supposed to be examining yourself. So you did it last week when we took communion. People came up to pick up the elements, the the bread and the cup. And before we did that, we always examine ourselves. Look what Scripture says about that, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. In other words, go to the judge and ask for a search warrant. Go to the one who knows your heart better than anyone else can say, God, will you examine me? Because that's what David did. We talked about this last week. Search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me. God, will you examine my heart? That self-examination is incredibly important. What does it do for you? Well, it causes you to look at your inner motives to see if you're set on God or if you're set on yourself. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Why? Because when someone habitually practices sin without any remorse whatsoever, or worse yet, they try to excuse it or justify it, in that case, God says, you're playing with a keg of dynamite. Destruction will come upon you. And God's word is very explicit. Look with me at this example, Ephesians 5, 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That one and the one I'm about to read in the Greek language, they're both written in the present imperative. In the Greek language, that means it's an ongoing behavior. They do it over and over and over and over. We're not talking about a Christ follower who slips in and then repents and comes back and says, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We're talking about someone who has no concern whatsoever and habitually they repeat this over and over and over again. So Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so in Matthew 7 and Luke 6, God's clearly saying, please don't be deceived. Don't fall into this place of self-deception. The person who professes Christ but habitually sins is saying with their behavior, God's a liar. I can do whatever I want. God either means what he says or he doesn't. Which is it? If you believe that God means what he says, we say amen. Amen. God means it. That's why he's pleading. And if he didn't care, he wouldn't say it. So here come Jesus' words, and it goes really fast. This is the parable. Verse 47 of Luke chapter 6. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So it's not the one who simply claims to hear Jesus. Jesus says, it's the one who does the will of my Father. That's the one who's saved. See, the issue of salvation is obedience. The issue of obedience to the will of God. 
the word of God. That's what he's talking about. That's why John 8.31 says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. See, salvation and obedience, those two are inseparable. You're, you're about to watch that in the baptism tank. These are individuals who are obeying what Jesus has called them to do. They're doing specifically what Jesus said. You got to do this because the disobedient, those are the ones to whom he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's where verse 49 ends. Verse 49, but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. And for five weeks now, we've been saying a parable is a physical reality laid alongside a spiritual reality to apply the spiritual reality to your life. What's the spiritual reality here? The, the ruin of that house was great. He's talking about eternity. This isn't just about bad building codes. This is about someone's eternal life. And did you notice that both of the builders heard the gospel? They both hear it. They both hear the word of the Lord. Verse 47, this is Jesus' response. So everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts, that's the one who saved. But contrast that with verse 49. But the one who has heard and has not acted. See, they both heard. So hearing applies to both the wise and the foolish. They both hear this way of salvation, and they both build a house. Well, let's take it out of the physical realm. What's Jesus talking about? They both build a life. They both build a life on this planet. They eventually meet somebody. They get a spouse, and they raise children, and they're building a home, and they've got a job, and they're working in the community. They both are building a life, but the wise one is building his life on these words of mine, Jesus says. So what's the implication? That this foolish one thinks his house is really secure. Simply because he heard and he acknowledged and he's got intellectual assent saying, okay, I get that, that makes sense. But clearly he's not acting on Christ's words because there's no life change. He's still consumed with the things of culture. Still consumed with the things of this world. There's no fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, mind you, he's not a doofus. He's intentionally building a life, a home, that he thinks is going to stand. So both of these builders are really confident that they've got a house that will stand. So you've got two contractors, and one's got a foundation under it. It's called the word of the Lord. He's built his life on the word, and the other is building it on himself. One's laid a foundation on the rock, Jesus said. Do you notice the outward circumstances are completely the same for both individuals? One has no advantage over the other one. They both face a storm. They both live in a fallen world. They both hang out in the same community. Probably know the same people. Both go to church. Their lives are very much alike. They hear the same preaching. They're responsible citizens of the community. The difference is one does act on God's word and the other does not act on it. One builds his life on God's specifications. So God says, that one, they built their life on the rock. Well, what's the rock there? Last Greek implication here. 
the word rock in the Greek language is Petra. It's not a boulder. It's not a stone. It's an outcropping. If you've done any mountain climbing, you've done any ledge climbing, any rock climbing whatsoever, you could go to the ledges over in Grand Ledge, and you would see that those rock outcroppings, what you see on the surface, that's not all there is to it. They're embedded in a much deeper foundation. In other words, they're part of the foundation of the crustal layer of the earth. That's what Jesus is talking about here. One who's built his life on a solid foundation. Not using somebody else's plans, but God's plans. And that is absolutely unmovable. But the sand, the sand is highly movable. It's composed of opinions. It's composed of speculations. It's composed of culture. And those who are building their life on the sand, they give no consideration whatsoever to the obedience of God's word. And those are whom Jesus are speaking to. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. If you think I'm being harsh about this, look at Arthur Pink's quote from 1918. He said this, these are individuals, they contribute regularly to the pastor's salary, but shrink not from misrepresenting their goods and cheating their customers, persuading themselves that business is business. They have more regard for the laws of man than the house than those of God, for his fear is not before their eyes. Let's contrast that to the other builder who hears Jesus' words and acts on them. They're building their life on the rock. These words of mine, Jesus says. I'll give you an example of what Jesus is talking about here. There was a time when he was talking to the disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And they threw out different ideas and then Peter makes a claim. I want you to see this on the screen. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, verse 17. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means son of John, Simon, son of John. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. What's the solid rock? What's the outcropping? What's the Petra Jesus is talking about? That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, on that truth, on that Petra, on that foundation, I will build my church. That same rock is the same rock that's referred to in Matthew 16, in Matthew 7, in Luke 6. We're talking about the bedrock of God's word. In other words, his revelation to you. The only rock on which you can build your life and guarantee your entrance into heaven. That's what God's talking about. So again, what we're seeing here is just like last weekend. A life that professes Christ but doesn't reflect any righteousness whatsoever. It's got no part in him. That's just a mere profession of Jesus if there's no legitimate obedience. That's just another kiss from Judas. There's no different than Judas. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. We betray Jesus with our actions, if we say we belong, but we don't really belong. I I don't want to confuse you. Jesus knows that even the most faithful Christ follower is going to fall. 
we do fall, we do stumble into sin. We talked last week about the body of death. Paul writes that I don't do the things I want to do and I do do the things I don't want to do. We understand that, we get that, we do fall. If that wasn't true, otherwise Jesus would have never taught us to pray. When you pray, say to the Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those in debt to us. He knows that's true of us. But when we fall, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and righteous to give us forgiveness. He says, I hear that. Because no Christian is sinless the side of eternity. The very fact that we confess our sins and seek his forgiveness, that's evidence. That's evidence that we belong because a non-believer is not going to do that. That's the evidence in your life when you long to see God restore you, even if you do trip and fall. So you hear this. A true disciple, a true follower is not one who simply hears. James writes this in James 1.22. It's a person who's a doer of the word. Look at this, James 1.22. Doers of the word, not merely, merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. Those who have truly come to Christ and are in a true relationship are those who are hungry to learn from his word and obey what he's called us to do. That person, they're never going to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Scariest verse in the Bible. We get to watch obedience on display now. I want to pray with you before we do that, but celebrate well what these individuals are about to do. Would you pray with me first? Father, I believe, I believe I stand in great company here with many individuals who really truly believe and understand what you did for us when you sent Jesus to die for our sins. Father, where you need to massage our hearts, I pray that you would do that. And if you've done heart surgery this morning, glory to you in praise and honor. By the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to work on us. But right now, cause us to celebrate. To celebrate the evidence that we're looking at of redeemed lives individuals who are obeying what you called them to do. Thank you for their witness. In Jesus' most majestic name, and all God's people said,